0: The Book of Pilgrim's Progress is an allegory of what it means or what believers may experience in their pilgrimage to become more like Christ. From the moment that you accept Christ and then you begin this journey, this life of learning about your faith and living out your faith. So it's a very interesting story. It's been around for a long time. Well, the main character is Christian and in his travels, he encounters people whose name Represents what they are. And toward the end of the book, he is journeying along with a fellow named Hopeful. And the two of them have different discussions along the way. And today I want to start the podcast with this discussion between Christian and Hopeful. Well, said Christian, we will leave our neighbor ignorance by himself for now. Let's talk of something else for the rest of our journey. Gladly, said Hopeful, but you should begin. "'All right, then. About ten years ago, did you know a man named Temporary in your area?' Christian asked. "'He was a forward-thinking man in religion then, I believe,' Hopeful responded. "'Know him?' "'Yes, of course. He lived in Graceless, a town about two miles from Honesty, and he lived next door to a man named Turnback.' "'Right,' said Christian. "'Actually, he lived under the same roof with him. Well, he was awakened once, I think, and had seen some of his sins and of the wages that were due there.' Hopeful said, I agree. My house is about three miles away, and he would have come to me, and often with many tears. Truly, I pitied the man and had hoped for him, but not everyone who cries, Lord, Lord, truly sees. He told me once that he was resolved to go on a pilgrimage as we do now, Christian said, but all of a sudden he met a man called Save Serve and became a stranger to me. Hmm, said Hopeful, why do you think there is such sudden backsliding of him and others? Let's talk about that for a bit. That's a good thought. But this time you begin, said Christian. Well then, said Hopeful. I think there are four reasons for it. Four reasons for people to turn back. Or as John Bunyan put it in his book, The Pilgrim's Progress, backsliding. And backsliding is a term that's used in some circles of Christianity. This is the Living Brightly Podcast, and I'm Elaine Cross, your host, And today we are going to look at this small segment of John Bunyan's book, The Pilgrim's Progress, and consider the questions, the challenges that they bring up when they talk about people who have had faith and for some reason have turned from it and are not exercising it to the fullness that they could or should. For those who don't yet know God can say, hmm, that looks interesting. I want what they have. I offer you things that challenge you and help you with your faith so that you can be a bright light, individually burning bright, pushing back against the darkness. And together we can be a city on a hill. So I've been looking at this country and the shift that has taken place pretty predominantly in the last 10 years or so. Now, this is a shift that's not new. It's been coming, and in the 80s, we talked about the slippery slope that some decisions that politicians were making were setting us on this course. And I think at this time here, on August 18th, in the 2022nd year of our Lord, that things look really different than what they did in 1980. They look really different than what they looked like in 1990. Frankly, they look really different than they looked in 2010, (laughs) This change, this shift seems to be coming at a faster pace. And because the faster pace, I think people were either unaware or just weren't paying attention. And I have long believed that most of us, you and I, have better things to do than to watch every little thing that our politicians do or every little thing that our elected officials do because we, in the best diligence we can, we elect the people And we expect them to take care of their business while we take care of ours. And occasionally something will come up and we make some noise and we say, hey, we don't like that. Stop that. And I think we're at a point where we're hearing a lot of those. Hey, stop that. No, 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 don't do that. Don't, don't you, don't, don't even go there, right? That's kind of how I feel about the border. We are a country of immigrants. Yes, And we have been a country of immigrants from the moment that we started. And it used to be described as the great melting pot. And really, it's more like a stew because there's the uniqueness of our individuality blended together in such a beautiful, aromatic, unique country that no other country on the face of the earth has. And although not all of our founding fathers were believers and were Christians or held firm to a specific church or theology, they all recognized the hand of God in creation and in the formation of this country. So I don't expect everyone in this country to be a believer, but I do expect our believers, you and I, to do what we need to do to maintain this beautiful gift that we have been given for not only our children and our grandchildren, but generations to come. Because there's still, after almost 250 years, no other nation on the face of the earth that has the freedoms and the liberties that we have and we enjoy. Many things have been replicated in small portion, but not in big picture. And the connection to this, to the Pilgrim's Progress, is the last Pew Research poll of citizens of the United States said that 76% say they are Christian. So if we believe what people say, 76% of the people in this country are believers. Well, there's not one party that's 76% of the population. There's barely a party that's 50% of the population. The number of voters who are not affiliated with either major party, Democrat or Republican, is growing. And maybe that's the frustration with the parties themselves and the way that our government kind of functions. And yet our government has really been a two-party system for most of its time here on the face of the earth. And I think the differences between the Republicans and the Democrats has become much more apparent Much more clear. And if you're going to vote with your faith, if your belief is going to impact how you vote and how you live your life, how you proceed on your progress as a pilgrim on a journey to know God more, to serve Him more. The question today is Are you ignorant? Are you ignorant? Are you trying to convince yourself? Bunyan in The Pilgrim's Progress talks about people who have sudden backsliding, people who had a measure of belief, a measure of desire to go on a pilgrimage, and then something distracted them, and now they're no longer like squirrel. Oh, let's go do that, right? So he mentioned four reasons for this. Let's look at the first one. First, though the conscience of such men are awakened... Their minds are not changed. And so, when the power of guilt wears away, that which provoked them to be religious ceases and they naturally turn to their own course again, like a dog that is sick of what he has eaten. For as long as he is sick, though, he vomits and brings it all up again. He is not doing this on purpose, just because his stomach is upset. But when his sickness is over and his stomach is well, He desires what he had eaten before, so he turns around and licks it all up, just as it is written. The dog is turned to his own vomit again. If one only desires heaven because the fear of the torments of hell, as soon as the sense of hell and the fear of the damnation begins to chill and cool, their desire for heaven and salvation cool also. So eventually, when their guilt and fear is gone, their desire for heaven and happiness die. And they return to their original course again. Have you been stirred? Have you been serving God out of your fear of hell or out of your love for Christ? And fear is used by a lot of elements in society, everything from politicians to preachers. Many people have come to the Lord through revivals that base their whole ministry on scaring people into a relationship with God. Everything to stir this fear of hell. But the fear of hell only holds you for so long. And ultimately at some point you have to decide if this relationship is something that you want and you want to pursue. The Western church, the church in the West, has become very comfortable in a state of peace. It's easy to be afraid when you think that you're End could come at any moment. And in reality, your end can come at any moment. You don't know when you're going to take your last breath. You don't know when that drunk driver is going to cross over into your lane and hit you head on. Or that major heart attack is going to strike. We have no idea. God knows our days, they're numbered. But we don't have that date. And to use fear or to base your relationship on fear is fleeting at best. Unfortunately, churches in the West today have become complacent in their theology. And unfortunately, there are many churches that, to appeal to the larger society's whims and to therefore attract them to come and learn and grow within their walls, they avoid subjects and topics that are not comfortable, that are not politically correct. They just avoid them altogether. One of them is hell. Another is the blood of Jesus. The fact that Jesus willingly shed his blood was beaten beyond recognition and gave his blood as a willing sacrifice to pay the penalty for your sin. That's huge. Now, they may mention it, but not necessarily in those colorful terms. And maybe they shouldn't teach you great depth because the church is a place where all believers should be welcome and feel comfortable. And if the teaching, if the preaching is too advanced for a new believer, then they will be left to flounder on their own. So the average church is really at a elementary or adolescent level of teaching with the idea that you will take responsibility for your relationship with God on your own shoulders and move into that relationship and grow. Not only is the West comfortable in its relative peace, we know that the church is exploding and always has in places of great political and economic pressure, famine, war, persecution. The thought of dying any day, any moment, any minute, drives people to seek out their creator. Just as the common saying goes, there's no atheist in a foxhole. When you're in a foxhole, it's easy to think about God, But if you're not in a foxhole, and if you don't really even think about your last breath for weeks and months at a time, maybe years, it can be harder to hold on to your faith, hold on to your commitment without fear. When life takes over and life interrupts your time with God, and it does, graduations, weddings, vacations, all different reasons can interrupt your Regular attendance at church. And if you miss for vacation and then you get back on Saturday, Sunday morning, it's like, oh, I'm still tired. We'll just go next week. And next week there's a golf tournament or another event. And the next thing you know, it's four weeks and eight weeks and six months before you've been to church. And then it's hard to go back because you don't have this fear of hell. So you convince yourself or you try to convince yourself that you have a relationship. And once you've made that relationship, you're all good. And yet the reality is that a relationship takes constant attention. And God doesn't need you. He wants you. He wants a relationship with you. In the New Testament, Jesus refers to himself as the bridegroom. And he talks about the kingdom of heaven can be compared to the king who gave a wedding feast for his son, Matthew twenty two, two. And in Luke and also in Mark, but Luke five, thirty four and thirty five, Jesus said to them, You cannot make the attendance of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them, can you? God wants a bride. He doesn't want a one night stand, he doesn't want a quick hookup. He's looking for a long term relationship. Relationships take work. Are you putting in the work or are you living on the fear? Another way to think of this is an addict. Addicts are fearful or they become fearful of what continuing in their addiction is going to do to their life. And mostly this is evident in their relationships with others or their financial bankruptcy. Addicts end up emotionally, physically, financially bankrupt They have few friends, they have few opportunities for work, they could be in jail, and the addict out of fear gets clean and sober. Let's just focus on alcoholism, okay? So the addict finally hits their rock bottom, their foxhole, if you will, and they decide that to get a better life, to have a better future, they need to put aside the alcohol. And by putting aside the alcohol, they become sober. And yet, when the struggles of life happen, and they happen, we all encounter them. When the struggles of life happen, they fall back into that normal, they go back to their vomit. They fall back into their normal coping strategies. Because in order to deal with stress and trauma and emotion and upheaval in their life, They have used alcohol or any other addiction to numb them to the reality of it. And some people have a relationship with Christ based on fear, fear of hell. And they're so focused on the fear of hell, when they lose their focus on the fear of hell, they kind of fall off the wagon. They fall off the wagon because the focus is on the fear of hell. The focus should be on the relationship with God. Like an addict, every time they run into struggles in their life and they fall back to alcohol because they are not focusing on the idea that it's the struggle they're getting away from, it's the better life. Maintaining those relationships, maintaining that financial security, maintaining that connection with the rest of the world requires the work of processing stressors in your life in a different way other than using alcohol. Maintaining a relationship with God requires handling the blessings of life with a relationship with God instead of forgetting about hell and forgetting about God and forgetting about it all and just enjoying the trivialities that this world has to offer. And there's no shame in coming back. There's no shame in admitting, you know, my my relationship with God was pretty shallow. It was only based on my fear of hell. Anyone who's fallen off the wagon will tell you the faster you get back on the wagon, the better it is because you have less time to destroy those relationships that are already tenuous at best. They're already at a heightened level of mourning because the sober partner, the sober family knows the propensity of an alcoholic to fall off the wagon is pretty high, especially a couple times in the beginning of their sobriety. And not everybody falls off the wagon, but the vast majority do. And it's not that they want to shame you or ridicule you or or denounce you. They want to cheer you on. Get back on the wagon. Come back with us. The reality is the wagon's moving, right? It's not like the wagon is necessarily staying still. It's not really the wagon is moving away from you. You're moving away from the wagon. So the longer you stay out of church, the longer you stay drinking, the harder it is to step back in because you feel like you have further to go and you feel like those around you are looking at you and are condemning you or judging you. And there is no condemnation in Christ. There is no judgment. God wants a relationship with you. He wants you in a committed relationship, in a long-term loving relationship as his beloved for the hope of everything to come, for the blessings he has prepared for you, for the abundance he wants to give you. For those other people in this world who are lost without Christ, to hear through you about Him. But it takes a commitment. Are you making the commitment? Are you willing to make the commitment? Have you made the commitment? Luke chapter 15 verses 7 through 10 say, I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who have no need of repentance. Or of that woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, because I have found a coin which I had lost. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels in God over the sinner who repents. If you find yourself in this position where you're going to admit, yeah, you know, I had a relationship. It wasn't real deep. It was pretty shallow. I was depending on the minister to do all the work. I just showed up on Sunday. Or maybe you're in that relationship right now. God wants to go deeper, wants to have a fuller, more committed relationship with you. It's like, and I'm not even going to go there, but it's a great analogy. Think of dating someone who doesn't speak your language. You saw them, you met them, and, and somebody was translating, and you really got a connection, and you really want to pursue that relationship. Well, you have to learn to speak each other's language. You can't always rely on a translator, you can't always rely on the intermediary. You can't always rely on your church to build your relationship with God. That's between you and Him, and He's calling, He's waiting. So let's go on to the second of these discussions in A Pilgrim's Progress. Another reason they are slave to fear that masters them, they have a fear of men, and the fear of men brings a snare, just as they seem to be hot for heaven, so long as the flames of hell are near. But when the terror is abated a bit, they have second thoughts. They believe it is good to be wise and not to run the hazard of losing all, or at least of being themselves or at least of bringing themselves into unavoidable and unnecessary trouble. So they fall into the old patterns again. Well, we do this too with our faith. Maybe you're working at a place and many of the people there are believers. So it's comfortable to talk about your faith and other people share about their faith. And then you get a new job or somebody else becomes the manager and the atmosphere shifts and the people there, instead of being encouraging about being a believer and learning about God and growing in your faith, they become adversarial and they condemn you or judge you or mock you. And to avoid that inconvenience and that trouble, not only do you not talk about your faith, but you stop exercising your faith. Or maybe you were active in your church for a while and then you went on vacation, so you miss church a Sunday. And then you got back from vacation on Saturday. It was like, oh, I'm still tired on Sunday, so you don't go to church again. And then the next Sunday, you get invited to go golfing. It's like, ah, you know, I'll just go golfing. And before you know it, it's been three months before you've been to church. And it just doesn't seem as important anymore because that time has been taken up with other things. And maybe it's just sleeping in and getting breakfast. Staying committed to church, to being in a community, to being in a tribe of other believers who help you and encourage you to grow in your relationship, and you can help them and encourage them to grow in their relationship with God, takes a conscience effort because it's very easy to walk away and fall away, and then it's much harder, it feels harder to get back in the rhythm. It's the fears that master them. And what is the biggest fear that masters most? The fear of missing out. The fear of not having enough or having less than those around you. Why would you not speak out at work unless you took the job and you knew you were not allowed to talk about religion at work? There were three lawsuits that went to the Supreme Court this year. and The Supreme Court decided in three different cases about the religious freedom individual citizens have in the United States, that the government does not have a right to infringe on that freedom. In particular, public employers, school teachers were one of the issues of the lawsuits. But It's this appeal of the world alcohol is the appeal of the alcoholic to drown the realities of the stressors in their lives to make it go away temporarily. For believers, it's the enticement of the world. It's that lust of the eyes. You see, you want, you crave, you covet those things. And maybe it's that you'd rather work four more hours at night than spend an hour reading your Bible. Because that four more hours might land you that big client. You want to take a second job so you can afford that bigger house. How big of a house do you really need? And I'm not judging because God wants you to be prosperous. We already talked about the fact that God wants us to take care of the widows, take care of the orphans, to spread the gospel across the world. That takes money. There's no doubt God wants to prosper you, but God has to trust you. You have to have that intimate relationship and you have to trust God. Do you trust God to provide all your needs and then to bless you abundantly? If you don't trust God to take care of your basic needs and you don't trust God to work with you and through you at your work, even while you remain faithful, you don't trust God to help you land those big clients. Are you praying about it? Have you prayed for favor? Have you prayed for wisdom to know how to approach the client to garner their attention and their desire to work with you? You know, an hour with God in prayer and study is worth 40 work hours as a human or more. There's doors God can open that you can't open on your own without his help a lot of this driven by fear and i'm calling it the fear of men but it's really the lust of the eyes and the snare of wanting to be wise in the world's eyes and to not lose it all to run that risk of losing everything and to avoid unavoidable and unnecessary troubles james 4 and today i'm using the nasb 2020 version which is what I usually use when I quote scripture. And I was going to read just a couple of verses, but you know, this whole whole chapter, it's not really long. And I think it's very poignant to this subject of fear of missing out, fear of losing out on what the world has to offer. James 4, starting in verse one, "'What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? "'Is the source not your pleasure "'that wage war in your body's parts?' You lust and do not have, so you commit murder, and you are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with the wrong motive, so that you may spend what you request on your pleasure. You adulteress, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says to no purpose, he jealously desires the spirit whom he has made to dwell in us, but he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God, but resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come close to God and he will come close to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak against one another, brothers and sisters. The one who speaks against a brother or sister or judges his brother or sister speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But who are you judging, your neighbor? Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. For you are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So for one who knows the right thing to do and does it not, for him it is sin. There's a lot in there, but a lot of it is Arrogance and pride and self-preservation. When you look at the world and you want what the world has to offer, and lose sight of the fact that God offers abundant more and abundant more in this life right now, not just in eternity. There's a concept in dealing with mistakes, and you you make a mistake, and you can either confront it right now and take your lumps, deal with the consequences, and then move on. Or you can kind of avoid it and delay it. And the problem with avoiding and delaying is it ends up magnifying. It ends up getting worse. So let's say your boss told you to call a client and the client is a big dollar client and I don't know, your kid got sick, you forgot. The next day you forgot again. Next thing you know, it's been three days and you're like, oh my gosh, I was supposed to call them on Monday. It's Thursday tomorrow. I have to go to work. And I know my boss is going to ask me, how are they doing? And I haven't talked to them. So you know, Wednesday night, Thursday morning, you're going to deal with this. Thursday morning, you can go in and say, you know what? I dropped the ball. I Reached out to them this morning and checked in with them, see how they're doing. Like either you talked to them or you didn't talk to them, whatever. You own it, right? And maybe you get pulled off that account because that customer is too important to have somebody drop the ball. So they're going to give that account to somebody else. So your commission gets cut or whatever, but you just own it. The other thing you can do is when your boss asks him how it's going, you say, Oh, it's good, with the idea that you're going to talk to him later that day. Well, you talk to them later that day and they're furious and they're ready to leave the company. They're going to go find some other agency to work with. And now you've got a bigger problem because then when they call, not only is the boss going to find out you didn't call them for four days, the boss is going to find out you lied to them. And now you may lose your job. So you see how it can be just be compounded the longer you wait. Don't let your enemy's shame and judgment, don't let your own disappointment in yourself prevent you from just getting back up and getting back on the wagon getting back up and getting back connected to a church, finding a different church, calling those friends who've been begging you to do a Bible study with them and say, you know what, September's coming. Let's do a Bible study this fall. they would be like, great, we're gonna be doing this one. You wanna join us? Yes, I wanna join you. I wanna learn how to do this. I feel like I have stupid questions. You know what, there's no stupid questions. We want you to ask questions anyway. Come on, we love your questions. You got great questions. Most of the time we create these barriers in our own mind, in our own imagination, that prevent us from stepping into what God has already planned for you. The blessing, the connection, the people, the community that God wants you to be a part of. Step into that. Be part of that. First, we have looked at the fear of hell and how when you are fearful of hell, when you are in the foxhole, when you are facing imminent death or the reality of what death might mean to you and your soul, Believing in participating in religion is easy. It's a motivator to start a relationship or start seeking truth about God, about the creation of the universe, and about your state as a sinner. But if the only thing that holds you there is fear, you will quickly fall away and you will be off the wagon, so to speak. And then we just wrapped up with this fear of missing out, fear of not having what the world has to offer. Because when you get sober, when you get on the wagon, when you get active in your faith, it can appear that you have to lose some things of the world. And yes, you do. You have to give up insecurity, fear, and you get in its place peace that passes understanding. You get God who wants to have a relationship with you, who wants to bless you. You get relationship and encouragement for today, not only eternity. Before we go into the third reason for people backslide, or as I've been talking about, falling off the wagon, that when you get right with God, it's like you're on his wagon, he is then carrying you along. And when you fall off of that, or when you turn back to the world, before we go on to the third, I just want to take a break and encourage you. This is a value for value podcast, and I put my time and my effort into producing this for you, and I would like you to come alongside me and help produce these. And you can do that through donating your time, your talent, your treasure. Now, there are things that I could use that are not just monetary treasure, but I certainly need that as well. And I like to put a picture along with them. So if you come up with a picture design and you want to submit it, you can do that to help take that burden away from me. And criteria is pretty short. The picture has to relate to the podcast and it has to have Living Brightly with Elaine Cross on it. That's it. If you give with your treasure, if you go to elainecross.com, you can find the links there to donate with several different options. If you know what I'm talking about and you don't know that you really have a relationship with God, that you've dabbled in religion a little, or maybe you just go on Sunday because your boyfriend asked you or your girlfriend asked you and... That's a big reason for people to get into religion and then fall away is because they have to go with their parents or they go with a significant other that, you know, I really like this girl, so I'm going to (laughs) go. At some point, you have to make it your own. And if you haven't made it your own, if you haven't started your own personal relationship with God, go to elainecross.com slash Jesus, and you can download my ebook, Connecting to Your True Power Source. And it will kind of walk you through that process and get you started with some basic tools, how to pray and how to begin this journey, this journey toward transformation, where you, and it sounds so trite, but where you learn to trust God to the point where you let go and allow him to work through you to change you. And he takes away your fear and he takes away your anxiety and he takes away your confusion and struggle. And he sets you on a place where you have confidence and you have peace and you have a knowing that can't really be explained with words because the spiritual connection that you make with the king of the universe, it's just unbelievable that we have that opportunity. We have that opportunity because of what Jesus did on the cross. So let's continue with the third reason that people might, in John Bunyan's words, backslide, in my terms, fall off the wagon fall off the relationship wagon with God. Back to the pilgrim's progress, and they go on. The next reason is there is shame that comes with religion, and it is a block in their way. They are proud and haughty, and religion in their eye is low and contemptible. And so they've lost their sense of hell and wrath to come. They return again to their former course, shame. Now, I mentioned this a little bit. But when I read it in this Pilgrim's Progress, I think of this shame as in it's simple. It's basic. Oh, you eat french fries? Those are so basic. I have sweet potato fries that are air fried with no oil, right? It's this idea that religion is for the simple-minded. Religion is for the uneducated. A relationship with God is for backward, unsophisticated, unintelligent, unwise people. And yet the vast majority of people on the planet believe this planet was created by something bigger than the planet. Even people who believe in evolution believe in the Big Bang, which is some force, some energy that started the whole thing. That's something outside of this universe. I would say the people who see themselves as wise and sophisticated and elevated and above religion are really the ignorant ones because they think they have figured it all out on their own while ignoring the evidence that's all around you. The fact that this world is set up in a way that A, functions very perfectly. It's like a fine-tuned clock in many respects on one hand. But on the other hand, there's this law of thermodynamics called entropy, which says basically everything goes to chaos. And those are such different extremes, right? Either everything came from primordial goo and all of a sudden, spontaneously, for some unknown reason, these single cell organisms began to create multicell organisms to the point where we have the diversity of the plant and animal kingdom in the human kingdom that we have for no apparent reason, which would be substantiated if everything did work like clockwork, except when everything works like clockwork, it's continual, meaning the sun is the center of our little solar system and we on our earth revolve around that sun 365 and a third days. We rotate a full rotation around that sun. That's clockwork. Because of the tilt of the earth and the way it rotates on its axis, it rotates 24 hours in a day and you have morning and you have evening a day. And that's clockwork. It does it all the time. It's not 16 hour days sometimes and 32 hour days other times. Now, depending on where you are on the earth, you may have longer days in the summer and shorter days in the winter because of the axis, the tilt of the earth. And that is very precise and it's very ordered and it's very structured and reliable. You can count on it and you can set your clock to it, literally. (sighs) But then you have thermodynamics where things in the earth, or the garden, if you will, move toward chaos. The universe itself is expanding constantly. Why? Well, that's something in the predictability of it, and yet it's continually expanding. Well, will it expand to some point that it will collapse on itself? Maybe. That's a theory. And yet here in the earth where we live, you walk outside and you look at concrete and somewhere along the concrete, you're going to see a plant shooting up between the crack and the concrete. You might not even hardly see the crack and a plant will grow. On the face of a mountain, seeds will be dropped and they will cause plants to grow on what looks like a rock face because this world not only is fine-tuned, this universe is so fine-tuned that it's very predictable and it's very organized. Everything on the face of the earth goes to chaos, And man is here to push back against that chaos, to keep the garden, to tend the environment so that all of us, the plants, the animals, the humans can cohabitate in this garden and all be mutually taken care of. And there's things that we've gotten wrong as humans. And there's things that we've corrected as humans. And we have the fall, which has brought in the curse, if you will, on the earth with the poisonous plants and poisonous animals and drought and flood and all these different things. And we have done really bad things as far as polluting the environment and the rivers were burning and all kinds of stuff. In the United States, we were like, okay, whoa, 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 we got to we gotta stop that. That's not good. And so we correct it. And now we have clean water and clean air, and and that can go to an extreme, but that was last week. That can certainly get out of hand, and that can become a god, that can become an idol. But when we look at this universe as everything goes to chaos, and yet it also functions very predictably and orderly, it's predictable that chaos will take over if man drops the ball. When you think about those things and you think, oh, you don't need no religion. Religion is just for the simple-minded folk. We are well-educated beyond that. I have to go, hmm, I don't think so. Because the creator of the universe wants to have a relationship with you. Most of the early scientists, most of the scientific discoveries have been made by people of faith, people with a deep relationship with God who wanted to understand this world more. They wanted to make life better. Frankly, I look at a lot of these discoveries, a lot of the inventions, As a way to make life better. Yes, we are now digging up coal and digging up oil to produce our electricity. And we have to do that wisely. We have to do that with with wisdom. And yet, to have the life that I have in the United States right now, compared to being able to have the life that I have right now in 1776 when this country was founded, When there was no electricity, where there was no or limited indoor plumbing, I would need a whole bunch of people to help me have this blessed life. And those people we called slaves. And people who had slaves had slaves to help them have a better life. And today, my slave is my microwave because that microwave heats up my food without me having to spend a lot of time doing it. I don't have to go build a fire, right? Get that fire hot enough, then get out a pan and heat it up in the pan and then clean the pan. Make sure the fire doesn't burn my house down, right? There's a lot of steps to not just even cooking food, just reheating the food. And I have these appliances and I call them all my slaves. You can ask my husband. They're my slaves that wash my clothes and dry my clothes and heat my water and take away my poo, And I don't have to have another person or several persons to do that. This is the abundance of life that we have been given because people of faith wanted to understand how God made this world work, discovered things about the riches that God had in this earth. And again, electricity has always been here. We just didn't have the means to tap into it. And yet, aside from Israel, the United States has not only been the most blessed, it has blessed the world the most because of its what it has been able to export and what we have been able to discover and create and develop to make this world a better place. Are some things misused? Absolutely. But I believe the hand of God has helped our scientists, has blessed this country, has blessed this world, because the creator of the universe has a relationship with people like you and me. And the solution to the problem that ails our society right now is a relationship with the creator of the universe. So there's no shame. It's not basic. It's not trivial. It's valuable. It's important. And it is honorable to have a relationship with the creator of the universe. That's just unbelievable that we can do that. And he wants that. He desperately wants a relationship with you. And to think that you could push it aside. And we do. No condemnation. We have all done it. Nobody listening to this podcast that at some point in their life did not have a time where they were not involved in their relationship with God. They put God on the back burner and walked away and had to come back and go, whoa, whoa, whoa! I'm sorry, God, want to be with you. Let's talk. That's all I'm asking that you do. Say, okay, wait, God, I want to have a relationship with you. I want to know what you have for me to do. Because not only were you uniquely created and you purposefully put here now, there are things that God can do through you that he wants to do through you, but you have to have a relationship with him for him to work through you. Back to pilgrim's progress. This is the last point. Lastly, guilt is grievous to them. They do not like to see their misery before they come into it. If they loved the sight of it, once they saw it, It would make them fly where the righteous fly and are safe. But because they, as I hinted before, shun the thought of guilt and terror when it comes to pass, that they are rid of their awareness of the terrors and wrath of God. They harden their heart gladly. They turn and choose ways that will harden them more and more. And Christian said, you are right in all of this. At the bottom of it all, they lack true change in their mind and will. And so they are like the felon who stands before the judge. He quakes and trembles and seems to repent most heartily, but mostly he fears the noose. He cares little about his actual sin. That's evident because if you release a man like that, he will be a thief and a rogue still. But if his mind was really changed, he would change. Do you only comply or only hear, only respond? When you feel the flames of hell, when you're in that foxhole and death seems imminent, when the world is crashing in around you, or do you take those moments to become aware and say, I want to change. Not only do I regret all that I've done, and not only do I regret not doing the things I should have done, but more, I regret not having a relationship with the king of the universe, not being able to be called like Noah, but who knows what your ark is, right? Maybe your ark is a small, little home study group where somebody brings a friend who doesn't know Jesus, who doesn't know anything about what you're saying, and then they have a relationship with the king of the universe. And then when you pass from this life and you stand before Christ And he can say, you know what? Because you were faithful in having that home Bible study. Now, look at the riches of your reward. And he shows you that man and all the people that that person touched and all the person that those people touched, because it's a ripple effect, right? It all ripples out like light because we're a city on a hill. We are a bright light that ripples in and pushes back against the darkness. It pushes back against the chaos. But it starts with us, and we have to trim our wick and fill our reserves by maintaining our relationship with the king of the universe, reading his word, being in prayer, growing in our faith, and allowing God to transform us, to truly change us from the inside out, not the outside in. So we have been talking about the Pilgrim's Progress. And in the Pilgrim's Progress, they have listed four reasons for people to fall away. I refer it to falling off the wagon, similar to an alcoholic who falls off the wagon in their sobriety. But I compare the wagon as your relationship with God. And there are four big ideas as to how John Bunyan in the Pilgrim's Progress describes this. And the first is the fear of hell. The fear of hell is a faulty mechanism a lot of people use to pull you into religion. Now, the downside of that is religion can be a trap as much as living in sin away from God can be a trap, and yet it can be a mechanism for people to actually establish a relationship with God, which is the goal. Father sent Jesus the Son so he could restore the relationship with his people, with you and fear has no place in your relationship with God. There's a spirit of fear. So if you are fearful of hell, you're not worried about your relationship with God. And fear is a huge motivator. So the first one is fear of hell, which is only fleeting, and eventually you forget about it because the heightened anxiety associated with it cools over time, as does your religion. The second is the fear of missing out, the fear of men, the fear that there are so many things the world has to offer and you may not be able to participate in those. And again, fear is not from God. Fear is a spirit that is used by your enemy to try and control you and to keep you from having an authentic relationship with God. 1 John 4, 18 says there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. Love is the key. Love is the commandment that Jesus left us with. Love your neighbor. They will know you by your love for each other. Fear is not an element of God's relationship with you, and it should not be any part of maintaining that relationship with Him. Fear is a tool of your enemy to keep you from a deep, authentic, intimate relationship with God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The third part that John Bunyan brought up in the Pilgrim's Progress in this small section as to why people fall away was shame shame for religion because they look at religion as a block, a barrier, even a crutch for the weak minded or the simple minded. And I think the best description of this is the story of, and I don't understand why it's called this, but it's called the prodigal son. This story really isn't about the son. The story is about the father. And this is about Jesus coming to the earth to put on display the father's heart. And this son in Luke 15, starting in verse 11, this son basically goes to the father and says, you know what, this isn't working for me. I just wish you were dead so I could have some more money so I could go do what I want to do because you don't really let me do what I want to do. And there's no father that I know of that wouldn't have at least some kind of response to say to that other than, here you go, here's a bag of money. But that's what the father does in the story. And that's Christ representing God. He's so passionate about your free will. And he's so passionate about you choosing to have a relationship with him that he will willingly let you go and do your own thing and hope upon hope that you will return. And sure enough, the son does return. And when the son returns, the father is elated and he runs out to meet him because he was watching for him. And that's how father God is for you. He's watching for you, and it doesn't matter how many times you have fallen away or let life or other idols get in your way of your relationship with Him. God is always waiting eagerly to have you return, to have that intimate relationship, that connection, that love connection with Him. That's what He wants with you. Then the fourth was guilt and shame for what they have done can be a barrier in your relationship with God there's another great story in the New Testament that Jesus shows, actually just demonstrates the father's heart for you. And that was with the adulterous woman. This woman was caught in adultery. And of course, the religious leaders were just licking their chops because they caught her in adultery. Now, the interesting thing is they say in the very act, well, in the very act takes two, but you see the man would have had Recourse. He would have had access to the law. He would have support of his other brothers to help him get out from underneath this stigma. And there's other religions in the world that do this. They blame only the woman. They don't blame the man, which just speaks to their limited human thinking where they bring her to Jesus because they're really trying to trap Jesus. And Jesus was there to exemplify the father's heart. So Jesus bends over. He writes in the sand. And he says, who of you who has not broken one little part of the law can throw the first stone? So they quietly, quickly all scurry away like cockroaches when you turn the light on. Jesus turned on the light of God's heart. He said, okay, if you want to live under judgment, if you want to live under the law, Who of you has not broken the law? And none could stay. And then he looked to her and he said, Woman, where are your accusers? And she says, none are left. And yet really, Jesus could accuse her. Now remember, this was before he was crucified. He could have judged her. And then he said, and neither do I. He was putting himself in there saying, I am not going to judge you. There is no condemnation in Christ. The story of the adulterous woman is in John chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. There is no condemnation in Christ. So in Romans, starting in chapter 7, verse 21, I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully agree with the law of God in the inner person, but I see a different law in the parts of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my body's parts. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself, with my mind, am serving the law of God, but on the other, my flesh, the law to sin. Therefore, there is now no condemnation at all for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. He condemned the sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Those of us who have a relationship with God walk in the relationship because of the Spirit, and we walk in the Spirit, there's no condemnation. There's no condemnation because all condemnation, all judgment, all punishment was on Christ. When you start feeling the pressure of condemnation, of the need to be punished, the need to make restitution, those are all works. Those are all works to try and work your way and buy your way into heaven like it's some grand scale. And if you balance the scale, it will all work out. But God isn't interested in punishment or measuring a scale. God wants a connection with your heart. God wants a connection with you personally. He wants a relationship like a bride and a groom, an intimate relationship. And he opens this relationship up to the point where there is no condemnation. The father doesn't throw the big party for the son who finally returns and then the next day beats him for scaring him or spending all his money. No, he just loves on him. And when those people had gathered around the adulterous woman with stones in their hands, ready to condemn her to death, because that was the punishment, and they all fled, they dropped their rocks and they fled, Jesus too said, I do not condemn you. He loves her. He loves you. And the idea of adultery is those other things that we set our heart on, the things of the world, the praise of people, the bigger house the bigger bank account. God doesn't care if you have those things as long as you have him first, as long as you nurture this relationship with him. And it takes effort. It takes time. It takes commitment like any relationship does. Are you willing to put in the time? Are you willing to step into this relationship or step up in your relationship with Christ to be closer, to be stronger, to be more connected heart to heart? And when you mess up, you go, you know, Lord, I'm sorry, that really got in the way of our relationship. And I don't want that to get in the way of our relationship. I want to be with you. And he says, oh, I'm so glad you want to be with me because I so want to be with you. Don't let fear, shame, guilt stand in the way of your relationship. Let love be your guide. The world can't understand love and you really can't learn love in the world. You have to learn it from someone who can really love you unconditionally. And if you're lucky, like I'm lucky, you might have someone in your life who loves you in a way that almost rattles your foundation because it's so different to the world's version of love. Love that's patient and kind and long-suffering and doesn't keep a record of wrongs and doesn't punish, it doesn't condemn, and doesn't demean and doesn't ridicule, and doesn't push you away, and doesn't make you afraid that you're going to lose it. It just love. And don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying there's no consequence when you do wrong, when you put other things above your relationship with God. Just like an adulterer in a marriage, that damages the relationship between the husband and wife, but it also has consequences. And those consequences could mean, in the physical world, in the relationship between the husband and wife, could mean the end of the relationship entirely. Adultery is eminently selfish. It's about meeting your own personal needs above the needs and the the health of the relationship with your beloved. And when we turn away from God and pursue those personal selfish desires, and they're not necessarily bad things. We get our priorities mixed up or we just plain ignore our relationship with God. There are consequences. You have heard the term tough love. Well, the righteous father in the story of the prodigal son loved his son enough to let him go. And he went and he made a huge, huge mess of his life. And he had to deal with the consequences. He was literally starving and looking at the pig's slop, thinking the pigs get more than I get. And it was in that position of humility and really desperation. He was like, I would do better off being a slave in my father's house than staying here. So he returned home. Now, he returned home and he had spent his inheritance. He didn't have anything more to receive from his father except what his father was going to give him. And in the physical reality of it, his father was going to die and his brother was going to get everything. And his brother wasn't really happy with him. Now, that's another whole different story. But this is not to say there's no consequences. This is not to say that there's no pain or struggle. But generally that pain and struggle you bring on yourself or your enemy brings it to your life and either you entertain it and you get wrapped up in it or you look to God and you say, God, what's going on here? I need your help. And often we go, I got this. I can do it. It's the fallacy of the American ideal. I'm going to do it my way. I can do it by myself. The reality is nobody does anything by themselves. Come on. The Lone Ranger had Tonto. Nobody does anything completely on their own. If you want to know more about having a relationship with Jesus, you can go to my website, elainecross.com slash Jesus, and it will take you to download Connecting to Your True Power Source. It's a little booklet I put together to help you get started having a relationship with God. We are here to be a bright light in the darkness, and every little light makes a difference. If you've ever been in a thunderstorm and you light one candle, you're like, whew, I can see where I'm going. I can see the edge of the coffee table, right? But if you light a second light, it makes it that much easier. And if you light 10 lights, 10 little candles in a room, you can read, you can play games, you can do lots of things. Individually a light, together a city on a hill, one by one pushing back against the darkness, pushing back against the chaos, and sharing in that light the love of God the Father, the willing sacrifice of Jesus Christ and his resurrection, and then the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit who leads you and teaches you and reminds you of how much God loves you. You go and love others as Christ loves you. And in that way, the world will know you're his disciples in your love for one another and you let your light shine that others may see your good works and not glorify you but glorify your father in heaven this is a value for value podcast take the value that i've given you turn it into a number go to elainecross.com make a donation so that we can spread the light of christ to all the nations thanks for joining me till next time